Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks is a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, the next of which we're excited to host September 12th to the 14th here in our home city of New York at the Javits Center Expansion. Uh, but our goal at those conferences and our goal here on these talks is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to bring the latest episode of the Salt Crypto Show, presented by FTX. Our guest today is Dan Moorhead, which if you're in the digital asset space, uh, is going to be a name that's not a stranger to you. Uh, Dan founded Pantera Capital in 2003, where he's currently the chief executive officer and co-CIO. And prior to that, he served as the head of macro trading and CFO at Tiger Management with the late Julian Robertson, rest in peace, uh, who passed away uh, in recent weeks. Dan began his career as a collateralized mortgage obligation trader at Goldman Sachs. And prior to that, graduated magna cum laude from Princeton University with a BS in structural engineering where he also received the Carmichael Prize for his thesis. Uh, Pantera Capital is the first institutional investment firm focused exclusively on Bitcoin and other digital currencies, as well as venture investing in companies within the blockchain tech ecosystem. Pantera launched its first cryptocurrency fund in the United States, which was the first such fund in the marketplace, uh, back when Bitcoin was trading at $65 per coin in 2013. The firm subsequently launched the first exclusively blockchain venture fund. Uh, in 2017, Pantera was the first firm to offer an early stage token fund. The Pantera Bitcoin fund has returned over 66,000% in eight years and has returned billions of dollars to its investors. Uh, Pantera currently manages $4.7 billion across three strategies, passive, hedge, and venture, uh, exclusively focused on Bitcoin, digital currencies, and companies in the blockchain tech ecosystem. Dan, it's great to have you here. And I'm gonna turn it over to Brett Messing, who's the uh, co-CIO president and chief operating officer at Skybridge Capital, uh, which is a global alternative investment firm with also uh, deep investments into the cryptocurrency space. Brett, go ahead and take it away. All right, thank you, John. Dan, good to see you, how are you? Great, great seeing you. So you and I spoke a few months ago and we were, I guess, agreeing that we recognize the cyclicality of uh, crypto, but both a bit surprised at the magnitude of the declines we've seen this year. Um, I guess, you know, you, you're, you're a crypto OG. Can you share with us just sort of your reflections on, you know, it, it's a open-ended question, Luna, three arrows, you know, the, the leverage getting flushed, um, you know, whatever you want to speak to. Yeah, so uh, in the past, crypto has been correlated with risk assets. So uh, there have been, I think, five big S&P downdrafts since Bitcoin started trading. The difference is in those downdrafts, it was only correlated for 71 days. And then it kind of went on and did its own thing. This time it's been correlated, you know, for eight months, basically, since, since the highs. And so I, I'll admit I'm surprised that it's still uh, as correlated as it, as it is. Um, but we are really in a huge, I think, tectonic shift in, in macroeconomics, right? We've had a long period of rates just coming down lower and lower and lower. And then, 
you know, any problem, the Fed can just bail everybody out. And, and now they can't. Rates are at zero uh, and now heading much higher. And so that's caught a lot of people out, uh, both in the crypto space and in, in the normal markets. And I think the, you know, the firms you mentioned there, you know, weren't really uh, thinking about the possibility for rates to rise a ton or for crypto to go down 80%. And if you put any amount of leverage on an asset goes down 80%, it's tough, right? And uh, I think that's what we're seeing is not, you know, no one really expected things to go down 80%. And, um, you know, if you put any leverage on that, it's going to cause problems in the system. Were you, were you surprised at some of the lending practices? I mean, we, we saw, I think, Voyager making unsecured loans to, you know, a hedge fund. We saw partially. Um, um, you know, collateralized loans. And, and I, I guess, so the follow-up question is, because I imagine you will say you're surprised, maybe you won't, um, is does that reflect like that there isn't demand for borrowing in crypto? Meaning, were these lenders lending so much on such generous terms to a handful of counterparties because they couldn't find, I assume they would have preferred a more diversified lending book and they just couldn't find I mean, you really don't use leverage. We don't use leverage. That's why we're having this conversation and we're not, you know, on the run um, in Thailand or wherever the three Irish guys are. But anyway, I'd like you to speak to both of those two things, if you don't mind. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and um, I would say my answer to the was I surprised is both profoundly yes and profoundly no. Like when the tide goes out, you see all kinds of crazy stuff you didn't imagine. And uh, in one sense, this is as old as time, you know, people taking on a lot of leverage. Uh, some people handled it very well because there's some firms that did a great job through this crisis and they're fantastic. And then there's some firms that, that didn't handle it. And, and we've seen in the great financial crisis or other, you know, excessive leverage periods, you know, some firms made it and they're, they're doing great. And some firms, you know, went under. And so uh, that that is normal. What I would say here that is different is. The value of incredible growth to some of these centralized finance companies like that you just mentioned, being able to show returns and show growth that was just astronomical that allowed them to get equity valuations, you know, that were doubling or quintupling is really different than, say, the, you know, Wall Street thing of like the great financial crisis, you know, Lehman Brothers or whomever wasn't selling equity up five times where it was six months before just because they were doing more loans, whereas in our space, you know, if if a company could print uh, a loan book that was growing at an astronomical rate, they could go from uh, raising equity at 100 million valuation to 300 million to a billion to 3 billion. And you could imagine that would incentivize you to want to grow your loan book, even, you know, in practices like you mentioned, like unsecured lending to hedge funds or whatever, that in the one in 10 chance you have a an unwind like we just had, you end up dead, right? But it might have been rational on an EV trade, right? Like nine out of 10 times you get away with it and it's awesome. You you know, you're going public right. and it's great. And you know, hey, one out of 10 times, you know, the roulette wheel stops on double zero and it, is, it doesn't work. So as we sit here today, I, I guess I'll timestamp this as August 29th because, you know, I know we're going we're gonna to run it soon, but people, you know, watch these things at various times. You know, we just had Jackson Hole and and uh, Jerome Powell doing his best Paul Volcker impression. You know, what's your outlook? You know, um, and let me let me put a, you know, six to 12 month 
you know, let's say six, 12 months, and then, you know, the next five years uh, for the crypto markets? Yeah, so if you're gonna start with, you know, uh, Powell and rates and then move to crypto, I have a very out of consensus view that rates have to go so much higher than almost anyone is currently imagining. Um, Paul Volcker, he raised rates to, you know, 15% or whatever it was to fight inflation. Um, we have rates at two and a half or whatever, even though, you know, CPI is at eight and a half. And if you actually really use real housing prices, inflation's easily in the double digits. So we're really barely even fighting yet on the front end. And I would argue that Fed's made equally large mistakes on the front end, which is something they've always controlled, and the back end, which they used to never touch. Uh, before 2008, the Fed didn't intervene in the long-term bond markets or the mortgage markets. So they have yet to unwind any of that. And that is what's creating a bubble in housing, which I think you know any person looking at it would agree. Uh, all of American houses can't go up 20% a year for more than a couple of years without a problem coming. So I think the Fed has a lot of work to do. They're just now getting their head around it. But I think rates could easily be 5% uh, in six to 12 months, short rates and long rates. Um, and that will cause a lot of things to start delaminating, right? I think, you know, obviously bonds have to get killed in that situation. I think it's gonna be tough for other asset classes like equities that are, you know, discounted cash flows. But that's why I'm so bullish on crypto that it's the it's one of the only gold and other commodities are another example of an asset class that's not connected to interest rates. So if we have to go all Volcker on this thing and rates have to go higher, you could easily see a world where, you know, equities don't go anywhere for a couple of years. Uh, real estate doesn't go anywhere. But blockchain keeps, you know, growing because uh, every two years, 10 times more people use Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Um, but there, there will be an increasing competition for for capital, right? Because in the environment at 5%, you know, rates, where's the high yield market, right? It's double digits, right? And th th those th those start to become attractive, right, to, to, to allocate capital to. I, I guess vis-a-vis -vis crypto, I guess who's the marginal buyer, right? So who who's the next, you know, who's the buyer that, you know, Let's say you know keeps it from going down and then pushes it higher. You know, I mean, I know you got you guys had some great capital raises last year, um, both across institutions to family offices and high net worths. Like, wh where do you see capital coming in um, into the space? The next, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I would say that you know, um, I just think we have a whole new asset class, and people need to kind of think about how that normally works and. I was at Goldman when they did the GSEI and then uh, trade emerging markets in the 90s. You know, it takes a decade or so for those things to become real asset classes. And then now we all think, oh, obviously commodities are an asset class or obviously emerging markets is an asset class. And I think we're right at the beginning of that. You know, as your firm and, and ours know, you know, there's some big institutions that are thought leaders that have a pretty, uh, well, even not, not many have a real size position yet, but they have, you know, percent or two in, in uh, blockchain assets. But I think in 10 years, blockchain is going to be a just completely normal asset class. Everybody's going to have a blockchain team, blockchain allocation. And I think the numbers could be something like 800 basis points. You know, it's going to be a pretty significant fraction of people's portfolio. And uh, the reason I'm so bullish is there are a few institutions that maybe have 100 or 200 basis points. Most are pretty close to zero. And so 
getting from these really low levels to whatever the end state is, you know, in a decade is going to be massive amounts of capital coming into our industry. And our industry's, you know, market cap's several trillion dollars. It's not really that big. So uh, if you're competing with the two or three hundred trillion dollar standard asset class markets and, and you uh, move, you know, a few hundred basis points in, it's just a lot of buying demand. So I have a theory. I want to see if you agree or disagree that you know the new buyers, right? Are are you know large pools of institutional capital, you know high net worth, because you know our kids have owned crypto for a while, so you know there are new kids coming along. But the people with the real money are people our generation, and you know Bitcoin and Ethereum have been and will continue to be sort of the gateway drug, right? So. Historically, we've seen during you know these sort of crypto bear markets, Bitcoin and ETH, Bitcoin usually first, and then you know leading us out. Um, do you think that happens again, um, or do you think that people will build more diversified portfolios um, sort of out of the gate? Oh, you know uh, the world does. You know history rhymes, but it's not always the same, and so. Uh, when the crisis started four or five months ago, we did go way strong into Bitcoin because you're right. In the past crises, Bitcoin's outperformed everything else. Uh, but now we're we're back into ETH and DeFi more so than we might have been in previous crises. Bitcoin's about forty percent of the overall market cap right now, uh, and uh, you know I think that dominance will probably shrink. Not because Bitcoin's going down; I think it's going up a lot. But I think. Um, with Ethereum merge and and DeFi and you know gaming and all these other things coming on, I think they can perform pretty well. And, and one thing to keep in mind is we're nine months into this bear market, right? Like you know we're not at the beginning of it. I think we've probably already seen the lows. I think June's probably the lows, uh, and so we're in the early stages of a bull market. And in a bull market, the smaller cap things outperform the mega caps, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Um. So let's talk about the merge. Um, um, do you think it's, it, it's significant more because of its impact on monetary policy or because of sort of the, the, the opportunities, if you will, to sort of build off of, on Ethereum? Yeah, I think it is probably more just that the reduction of supply is going to be great for the price of ETH that, um, you know, you and I have talked a bunch of times about every four years you cut the supply of Bitcoin and it really does go up every four years. Uh, and so when you have a constant or growing demand and you cut the supply, you know, it really does have an impact on the price. And in Ethereum's case, you know, they've done a handful of upgrades over the years. Uh, and this one, you know, kind of slipped, if you will, uh, for a while, and people got kind of bearish on it. But uh, the Ethereum Foundations, once they've set a date, they've always hit it. And so um, as soon as they set the date, that's when Ethereum exploded and it's been outperforming Bitcoin since the merge date was set. So I think that'll uh, keep going for a while. Um, and, uh, you know, Ethereum has typically done better in rallies anyway. So we're more bullish on Ethereum right now. So, you know, part of the merge, as I think many people know, is, is that Ethereum is moving from proof of work to proof of stake. Um, and there's no shortage of controversy around, you know, I guess the relative virtues of each, um, the concerns about concentration and proof of stake, the benefits of not being ener- using a lot of energy. I guess, w- what are your thoughts generally 
on those two sort of consensus mechanisms? Yeah, so I guess the first one to say is I'm definitely not religious about it, like like some people are, that the world does have room for more than one consensus mechanism. We could easily have a world where a couple uh, coexist. Uh, proof of work is definitely uh, incredibly secure, right? Bitcoin's never been hacked. Um, you know, there's so much uh, hardware and electricity being thrown at it. It's it's inconceivable that anyone could ever have enough resources to to uh, hack or counterfeit Bitcoin. So obviously, proof of work is really good at what it does. It has the uh, detraction of consuming, uh, you know, large amount of energy. Um, I guess large is one tenth of one percent of the world's energy. So. Um, it's not zero, but it's still, you know, there's a lot of things that consume a lot more energy than, than uh, Bitcoin does. The flip side, you know, not uh, going to proof of stake, it's more akin to corporate uh, securities like we're used to. Um, you know, uh, corporate securities are all one share, one vote. And so proof of stake is basically the same as we're used to in the securities world. Um, it does have the benefit of aligning the ownership with the voting. Uh, Bitcoin has kind of that interesting quirk of uh, the miners do all the voting, even though they might not own, you know, a large percentage of the Bitcoin itself. So um, I think, you know, both are, are have their virtues. So uh, I can see a world easily, you know, 10, 20 years from now where both exist. And um, is it you do you think there's going to be a multi-chain world? In other words, are you, you know, what are your thoughts on Solana, Avalanche? near, you know, Aptos, um, or they really exist just to keep Ethereum on their game? Um, oh, uh, it's a great question. And I, I have a strong view that it's a multi-chain world. You know, again, uh, you and I have heard a ton of investors over the years really get hung up on like, well, who's going to be the winner? Is it Bitcoin or Solana or Ethereum or whatever? And that's not the way the web worked, right? It's like, oh, I'm not going to buy a stock until I know who's going to win the entire world's internet. No, you know, there's four or five really important companies and there's 30 pretty important companies uh, in the internet. So that'd be the, the world here is there's different use cases, right? You know, we just talked about Bitcoin being amazingly secure. Like I can't imagine, I think it's literally impossible to corrupt Bitcoin given how valuable it is now and how much hardware is there. So that's great if you're going to store an enormous amount of money and you don't really care about the speed of execution, you know, Bitcoin's obviously the best. It's great. Uh, but if you're playing a video game and you don't really care, you know, uh, about how secure it is, but you really want incredible latency and you really want uh, some other attributes, you know, Solana might be better, right? So I can easily see a world where there are something like a single digit number of important blockchains. It's not going to be 5,000. Uh, but I, I think it's equally not going to be one. Um, it'll be a handful and they'll have different use cases, you know, um, like Ripple's an interesting example. It's trying to replace Swift, right? That's <laughs> that's its one main use case, right? Uh, Solana, Near, trying to do high frequency things. Um, you know, Ethereum does really amazing uh, smart contract uh, uh, functionality. So I could easily see all of those still being important, plus like five others we haven't even heard of yet, right? 10 years from now, there's going to be projects that have not yet been launched. And until Ripple stops like attacking Bitcoin, we have a don't talk about Ripple policy here on the Salt Talk. That's so fine. I, we, I, we, I, won't, we won't bleep that out, but we're not going to dive. You know, we, 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 we'd like the Ripple people to play nice. And once they do, we'd love to have them come on. But until they do, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to support them. Um, 
You mentioned earlier DeFi. Um, I am extremely bullish DeFi. I guess I'm less bear, bullish than you are short term just because of the well, two things, the regulatory environment. And, you know, the banks have done a pretty good job historically of defending their turf. Um, I guess you're, you're, I know they, they certainly seem cheap on various metrics, but I guess what's driving your short term you know, bullishness in reaction to the, if you agree that those trends are, are, are headwinds. Oh, they are. Uh, everything said solely true. Banks are probably the most effective lobbying group on earth. They've protected their turf, you know, honestly, 500 years since the Medici set them up, right? Like it's, you know, it hasn't changed much. And that's why DeFi is so threatening is you're going to have a parallel financial system that isn't controlled by the, the usual gatekeepers. Um, the reason I'm bullish is it's only 0.3% of the market cap of the traditional financial system, right? So what if we're wrong and it goes to zero? You're out 30 basis points, right? If we're right, it could easily go up 10x or 20x or whatever. So I'm making more of a value judgment that I think DeFi is really important. It proved itself. Like that's a theme that, you know, most press and skeptics got backwards. Everyone's like, oh, you know, DeFi blew up and it was terrible. No, you know, DeFi did great. All the DeFi protocols, uh, with one notable exception, uh, did exactly what they said they were going to do, where it was centralized financial firms like, you know, three hours or whomever that didn't uh, do what they said they were going to do. So I think DeFi proved itself. And a few years from now, we're going to think, hey, you know, that was a seminal moment for DeFi and it'll, you know, continue to grow. And it just, it got down. All DeFi protocols in the world were only $8 billion at one point in June. Right. That's just cheap, right? Like, uh, you know, it just, if the legacy firms are worth 2 trillion and all of DeFi is 8 billion, like it feels like you're getting some great leverage. And I do agree with you. The regulatory thing is an existential risk that like, yeah, we could wake up tomorrow, open the newspaper, find out something real bad happened, right? You could, but maybe we're here two years from now and nothing really bad happened and DeFi is rocking and rolling. Right. Or maybe both. Right. I mean, it's, yeah. I, I would have to say I, I have been absolutely amazed at the progress in Washington. Right. In terms of, you know, last spring, the Senate was having hearings and you had Elizabeth Brown and Sherrod, I mean, Elizabeth Warren and Sherrod Brown absolutely attacking Bitcoin and crypto generally and Brad Sherman. And now it just seems inevitable, not not this congressional term, but next There'll be some kind of bipartisan. It may not be exactly what we want, but you know, um, I think it'll be substantial progress. Um, I mean, do you share that optimism in terms of about the the general political environment? I do, and if you think about it, you know, uh, in the I view blockchain as kind of the last piece of the internet. But like, if you look at the you know the other half of the internet, the U.S. literally invented the internet and then did all kinds of regulatory. Uh, advantages to internet, like, you know, um, gave Amazon eight and a quarter percent subsidy against, you know, Barnes and Noble in the bricks and mortar book business. And so all the big companies in the internet uh, developed in the United States. And I think it's good as, as an American. So uh, I think policymakers are getting that, that whether or not they like blockchain, the toothpaste is out of the tube and they can't put it back in. And so you might as well you know, have it happen in countries that are, you know, like-minded to the United States or in the United States and not have it dominated in, you know, adversarial regimes. And so I think, you know, even the U.S. regulators who 
might kind of instinctually want to have a, a harsher view about it, realize that, you know, if they really squeeze down on it too hard, it's not going to stop blockchain. Blockchain is totally going to happen. It'll just happen elsewhere. And so you got to have sensible regulation that allows it to thrive, you know, in the United States. Well, you know, I worked in, uh, in city government and there's sort of two things just to not to, you know, scope that experience out too broadly. But the two things that seem to get politicians' attention are, are jobs, particularly, you know, high paying white collar jobs and voters. And over the last couple of years, right, there's been, you know, I mean, while we while we've lost some soldiers, it's been a little bit like Normandy in the crypto industry in terms of headcount over the last several months. Um, I have a daughter at Coinbase who has survived the headcount reduction, but again, cyclical industry. A lot of people working in crypto, right, which means their friends, their parents, all those people own it, they talk about it, and, and those people vote and uh, and they care about it. So that 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 seems to me to be, you know, driving a lot of what we're seeing. Yeah, and if, if uh, the protocols and companies that you're talking about uh, get hassled too much by regulation in any one country, like we're talking about the US, it doesn't mean they stop doing what they're doing. They just hire somebody in Singapore or they hire somebody in you know Switzerland or whatever. So those jobs would be going offshore rather than being in the United States, paying taxes, you know, renting apartments, doing all the uh, stuff that economic activity brings. So just to bring it sort of back to Bitcoin, Dan, you referenced before sort of the halving cycle and, and you, you know, we have sort of this historical data around Bitcoin. And, and I think we'll start for last year, like last year, I don't know about you, Bitcoin underperformed my price target and I have an excuse for it, uh, but it did break the chart a little bit. Um, you're actually more of a chartist than I am. I guess, what what is your reaction to that? And does it make you rethink the value of historical data? Was it anomalous? How, how, did, how, does, it, how does it change your framing of it? If not, if at all? Yeah, no, it's it's important. Certainly, I didn't predict how much uh, Bitcoin would be influenced by the global macro market meltdown. Uh, but I really do think that's um, an external shock that'll kind of go away and dissipate and crypto can get back to its fundamentals. And the fundamentals are that, you know, a few years ago, 30 million people used crypto now, say 300 million or whatever it is. And honestly, I think it's almost certain that within five years, a billion people would use crypto. And if a billion people are buying Bitcoin and there's still 21 million of them, it's just going to be a higher price, right? So uh, I think that the fundamentals are so strong, it'll push through any kind of global macro issues we've got. And the way I would think about it is, um, on average, Bitcoin has gone up uh, 2.5x a year for 11 years, right? It's had a really anomalous period of four years where we're basically at where we were in 2017. That's probably uh, a really compelling time to get engaged, to get into it. And I do think it'll revert back to its trend. And if we're right, that basically in 10 or 15 years, everybody with their smartphone is going to have Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency as their payment mechanism, as the way they store their wealth. You know, it's just got to be a much higher price. And that, that's why I'm still so bullish. You know, whatever, maybe, what is it, 20% of the world maybe or less has... Uh, exposure to crypto right now, 15% of the world. And I think it's going to be 60 or 70. 
Yes, but, but Dan, when we look at the historical data, I want to press on this a little bit. Like, you know, for some of it, it's a really immature asset, right? I mean, it's so small that, you know, a handful of players can really affect the price, right? So, you know, it crossed a trillion dollars in market cap last year. Unfortunately, we're down a lot from that. You know, then you become a real asset where it requires flows on both sides. So I guess my question is, is that early data applicable or, you know, is it almost like looking at an athlete and saying, well, there were the years when you were a youth and now we're looking at you as a young adult or, a, you know, or, a, or a, an adult and we're going to we're not going to compare how you did at age 12 with how you did at age 18. I mean, how do you think about that? Yeah, no, uh, what you say makes sense. And there's obviously going to be some point in time where the growth rate has to, you know, uh, you know, come back to some kind of more flat line. But there's all kinds of adoption curves of all kinds of other technologies, the telephone and the internet, all that stuff, where it goes, it's an S curve, you know, very slow for a while, goes vertical and then goes slow again. You know, I think we're still in that, given that only 15% of the world is using crypto. You know, we're certainly not at the end of that S curve. Mm -hmm. Okay, I uh, I of course agree with you on that. Um, you know, we've there've been a couple of I think exciting announcements, the visa v adoption that have gotten you know lost this year. You know, one is you know uh, Fidelity, you know, in integrating Bitcoin into their four hundred one k. Right, we had BlackRock announcing a partnership with Coinbase, and they're going to be rolling out a trust to compete with our respective products. Um, and you know, uh, BNY Mellon is about to sort of launch their much delayed sort of you know custody program. Um, I'm hearing about a few few other things. Um, do you think these are are all extremely significant? Are they just sort of what you would expect? Are they going to get lost? Because, you know, the macro is sort of controlling everything. And, you know, um, I guess how important is that sort of access and validation? No, I, I love it that you point that out. I think it's massively important because um, there's just this kind of uh, ill thought out uh, kind of reticence for people to get engaged in the blockchain industry. And one of the classics when you're talking to a big institution is, well, we can't do it because of compliance reasons. And you're like, huh, I've been doing this for 10 years. I literally don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean by compliance reasons? They're like, well, my compliance department says I can't do it. I'm like, but why do they say that? And no one ever even knows, right? Like, I don't, I literally don't know what the issue is. Um, it's just another asset. It's like any other three tick, you know, you trade JPY, EUR, BTC, you know, it's the same. And so when you get these massively valuable, massively credentialed entities uh, like Bank of New York, uh, which didn't Alexander Hamilton found that thing on one Wall Street, right? Like, you can't get older and better than that. And Fidelity's been around for so long. And, and um, Abby Johnson has been super involved in Bitcoin since 2014. You know, all those are massive credentializations for our industry. And then that helps all the other people follow because it's so hard to be the point of a spear, right? It's just so hard to be number one, to be the first one cutting through. But then when these other successful companies uh, are doing something in our space and they realize it's just a normal asset, like there isn't anything special about Bitcoin that makes it super scary. Like it's, it really is just like any other asset. Uh, everyone's gonna pile in. So, you know, it's really hard to be the first person into something. 
it's not that hard to be like the fourth or fifth company into a space. So I, I, I really think those are important. And Dan, what, what are you worried about? You're right. You know, um, I mean, I can tell you like in June, I was worried about like, you know, what's the next shoe to fall? Um, uh, Cause there were definitely problems that, that just weren't visible. Like, you know, so I, I, I didn't know how to, um, sort of factor them into any kind of analysis. Um, I mean, I mean, aside from the macro, which we, look, we can't control any of it, but I guess what, what should we be mindful of and what are you most worried about? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and again, you know, uh, in the midst of some kind of crisis or downdraft, you don't know what the next shoe is to fall. But having seen 35 years of these cycles, there is just some length of time that humans can hold on to a bad position or leverage or capital calls or, you know, margin calls or whatever. And it just feels like after eight or nine months of this and kind of the, the panic selling into, you know, May and June, uh, that we probably saw the worst of it. Like, you know, it's just hard to imagine there's another centralized finance company out there that is, you know, net negative equity that's still holding off their creditors, right? Like, it feels like if there was somebody out there, that was two and a half months ago, they probably got cleaned out. So I don't really think there's any excess leverage problems. And, and you've seen it in all the, the DeFi protocols that did have a lot of leverage on, you know, 60, 70% of their assets washed out and now they're starting to rebuild. So uh, I don't worry about that. I actually, I used to, I, I'll admit four or five, six years ago, used to really sweat, maybe, you know, Bitcoin's not going to work and, you know, maybe blockchain's a dumb idea or whatever, but, you know, we're way past that. And so uh, all those, and so the regulatory risk is kind of the last one. I, I really, you know, uh, I really, that's the only thing that ever, like if this thing really, if we meet again a year from now at this conference and Bitcoin's down, honestly, I think that's really the only culprit that comes to my mind. And, you know, as long as we don't have something weird happen on the regulatory side, I think we're back to that kind of long-term growth of 2.5 X a year. So uh, I, and the easiest way to say it is in the previous bear markets, like the crypto winter of 2014, I was sweating bullets. Like I was like, maybe this thing was a dumb idea. I don't know why I put my whole career into this. This is crazy. I, I, I don't, I have no worries about that now. Uh, I, I think it's like 90% chance Bitcoin's way higher two years from now than it is today. And, and, and is that just a Lindy's law kind of thing, Dan, that, you know, it survived this far, it survived Mt. Gox, it survived, um, you know, I, we can go through a litany of things. Um, wh why are you more confident? Well, yeah, because it's now got real use cases. 10% um, of all U.S. to Mexico remittance goes over Bitcoin. That's awesome. And I don't know why that number's not going to be 90 in about 10 years, right? Like, the average uh, remittance cost is 9%. And for you and me, we're in finance, 900 base points, a number, whatever. For the migrant, that's a month's wages, right? All these people that are working super hard to support their families back home are paying their remittance company a month's wages every year. And if they got Bitcoin on their smartphone, they can send the money essentially for free. So uh, that's what makes me so bullish. The, the real use cases are happening. The other one, you know, if you want to switch gears, uh, Web3 to me is the most obvious idea I've ever heard, right? We got all these companies, you know, like Spotify or Airbnb or whatever, you know, great business models. We all love using them. But do we really need to pay 20 or 30% of the total value of that industry for the rest of eternity to those companies? No, you know, we can do a decentralized version. Uh, and so there's projects like Audius in the, in the music space 
already have 8 million users, you know, sharing music in a better environment. And the artist gets, you know, way higher cut. Um, so to my mind, it's, it, it really is almost inevitable. I know you, you can't really, you know, say that in finance, but I think it's very, very likely that blockchain is incredibly important 10 or 20 years from now. And if that's true, it's going to be worth more than a couple trillion dollars, right? Like we're just at such a early stage. Going back to the remittance, because I've always been sort of fascinated with that. Um, what are your thoughts on lightning? Are you a lightning bull? Do you think it's a grown-up science project that won't really scale, which is, you know, a criticism I've heard, including from some of my colleagues? Um, what's, your, what's your general take on it? Yeah, I, I love the team and super uh, hopeful that it works, but I haven't personally spent a lot of time on lightning, so, you know, I wouldn't, I, w I don't have a deep view on it. Um. You talked about regulatory risk, you know, um, so it was a week ago, two weeks ago, um, OFAC cracked down on tornado cash. Um, uh, does that make you, does that matter? Does that, is that, you know, crypto Twitter was freaking out, um, you know, I, this is, I guess, a politically incorrect from crypto circles. I, I didn't see it as being freak out worthy and I'll, 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 um, I'll concede I probably don't have the kind of working knowledge of it that I should, um, but it seemed like a fair amount of it was being used for illicit purposes. Um, maybe the way they went about it wasn't right. I guess, what's your general thoughts? I'm definitely open-minded to being told I, I, I should take it more seriously. Yeah, I think I align with you on that. That I remember the earliest days in like 2012, 13, where everyone was super libertarian if there was any mention of any government regulation of anything everyone like you know went completely crazy and at the time i believed that our industry actually would achieve the libertarian goals people had better if there was more sensible regulation right and so i still think that's probably on balance true that um you know all these massive entities that could use blockchain uh, aren't yet doing it because, you know, the, of these, quote, compliance risks or whatever, that I think uh, on balance, sensible regulation is positive for our industry. Um, you know, so I, I share your view that if, if we have pragmatic regulation, more people use it, more people benefit, you know, and 98% of us aren't doing anything sketchy with crypto. So we don't really care about uh, some of those issues. So, you know, I, I'm... I'm with you in the sense that, you know, I'd rather see our industry grow and help 4 billion people transfer wealth, store wealth, you know, than kind of, you know, die in the petard of, you know, libertarianism or whatever. Right. No, I, I guess I, I, I agree. So Dan, you guys are very active in the venture space as well. Um, what are you seeing there in, as we sort of navigate this, this sort of, you know, bear market? Yeah, so obviously in the private equity markets, it always takes a while for valuations to reset, you know, because the entrepreneurs have to go through the five stages of grief, right? You know, they, they still want the old price and it's going to take a while. But when it all kind of resets, um, you know, still some really exciting uh, infrastructure plays, um, even a few countries that still need an exchange. Uh, but what the, the kind of cutting edge of the newer things are... Um, uh, like scalability is super important, as you know, you know, with projects like Lightning that are helping uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum pump more transactions per second through. Uh, so things like Starkware, Arbitrum, and then uh, gaming and NFTs are kind of the next frontier. Um, it brings in a whole new 
group of people that that think it's fun, right? Like the early days, you know, SHA-256 was pretty deep and it's kind of hard to get everybody excited about it. But like NFTs get people fired up. So it's bringing in a whole new group. Gaming's obviously massively important to a huge number of people. And blockchain gaming is now starting to be uh, pretty usable. So all those plus Web3 are, you know, areas that we're investing in now. Um, are, you, are you doing more early stage stuff where the valuation isn't as tricky? Is it the five stages agree for those people who have raised in the last you know year or so might need capital and you know they're just not going to get they're not they're going to have to do a down round. Um, yeah, so the the uh, it's like in the housing market, you know, when the housing's going up and up and up, the transactions are clicking on at a really high pace. And then when something makes the price gap down, transactions go to zero for like four months while everybody kind of readjusts and then they pick up again. And so what we've seen is all the kind of growth stage rounds have gone to zero. You know, nothing is happening unless someone's forced to. There's you know probably a few examples of somebody that actually needs the cash and they have to do it. So we're still doing mainly early stage deals uh, and early stage token, uh, private uh, token deals, because those are young projects that are still pretty you know low valuations. Uh, they need to get the money, need to get going. Whereas the, you know, the bigger growth stage companies do probably want to wait for six or nine months until, you know, kind of valuations meet each other. I guess last question, Dan, you know, we talked about you seeing it as a multi-chain world. Um, like how many companies are there going to be with tokens? Like, you know, I, 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 sometimes I wonder, if some of these projects require a token, right? Or if they they just shouldn't be, you know, traditional equity raises and build on an existing blockchain, be an application on a blockchain as opposed to having their own token. Like, um, um, are we gonna see token MNA or, you know, are there gonna be hundreds of tokens with, you know, from a hundred hundreds of million dollars market cap up to you know trillions, I mean billions or trillions. Um, yeah, thoughts on that. Yeah, so it's a it's a great point. Um, what I'd say is uh, you're right that uh, not every project needs a token, and so especially in 2017, 18, you know everything you know want to have its own currency or its own token, and and uh, we're now much more sensible on that. But the, on, on the flip side, the thing to keep in mind is, you know, in the United States, we have 4,500 public companies, right? Like, so if we do go to a world where a lot of those use cases are run by protocols, there could be thousands of, of uh, you know, layer two protocols, on, you know, uh, out there. So when the skeptics, and we've been hearing this, you know, for years, are like, oh, there's 5,000 things on coinmarketcap.com. So that means it's a fraud. It doesn't. It means, you know, we're in the early stages of, you know, trying to build out this industry. But if 10 years from now we have 5,000 important tokens, I wouldn't be surprised. That is definitely possible because I actually do really think we're going to have a, a Web3 version of most, you know, digital native type companies that we're used to. Like the even, you know, social networking and things like that, I think will ultimately be in a decentralized format. So there, there could be, you know, literally it could be thousands. Is it really, Dan? Let me just press back on that a little bit because it's crypto is ultimately software, right? So, right, Spotify is a software company, right? Some of these web these web two companies that we think can be web three are software companies, right? Yep. I mean, isn't that universe much smaller than the total universe of public companies, right? Which includes industrial companies, retailers, 
airline ship. You know what I mean? So is that the right bogey? Well, yeah, it would, I wouldn't say it'd have to be 4,500, but it could be a thousand or more. And then the cool thing about new technologies is they invent things you didn't imagine before. So there's all kinds of new, you know, identity, voting rights, you know, types of use cases that there isn't a commercial corporate analog to yet. You know, so I do think there could be easily more than a thousand of these projects out there. Got it. Okay. Well, maybe they people could like digitize documents and former presidents wouldn't have to take them with them to their homes when they leave office. I mean, you know, that's a that's a thought. Um, oh, so you'd have the provenance time stamped on a blockchain? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's a good idea. That might work. So we should do um, that. Well, look, every time I talk to you, I'm left more bullish. Um, so, you know, given uh, Friday's sell-off, again, following Jackson Hole, this was a timely uh, talk to tape, even though our viewers will be a few days behind. Um, thank you for joining us, Dan. We'll look forward to seeing you at SALT, where you'll be center stage. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll have higher prices ahead soon. Yeah, thanks. It's been a blast. All right. Take care. Thank you again to Dan Moorhead for joining us today on SALT Talks. And thank you, Brett, for a great interview. And thank you, everybody, for tuning into today's talk. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can access them on our website on demand at salt.org backslash talks on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. Or you can listen to Salt Talks anywhere that you consume your podcasts. You can listen to them in audio form. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active, uh, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And we would love to see you September 12th to the 14th at the Javits Center Expansion in New York for our flagship global conference, uh, which is coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, but on behalf of Brett and the entire Salt and Skybridge team, I'd like to thank you for joining Salt Talks today. We hope to see you again soon.